Hi friends! Welcome to the Purple Couch Clubhouse by the Ohio University Women's Center. My name is Rihanna Hunt, self-proclaimed book lover who invites you to sit and chat about books or readings that we could all learn something from. I understand that life is hectic and you're probably thinking you don't have the time to read a whole book. No worries, I kind of get paid to read and just like an in-person book club, I'm prepared to be the only one who's done the reading. The conversation will be guided by concepts from the book and all include the, port- the important context. This month, we will be reading Love from A to Z by S.K. Ali. This is the story of Adam, a young Muslim university student diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and Zainab, a high school senior and the only hijabi in the class of an Islamophobic teacher. When Zainab finds herself suspended from school due to this institutionalized discrimination, her parents send her to Doha, Qatar to visit her aunt. On the plane ride there, our couple meets. They fall in love slowly and adorably while we watch through their Marvel and Oddities journal entries. Our story is not one of simple romance, as these two lives come with complications. Adam has a secret of his own, and Zainab, who's already on a roller coaster due to the Islamophobia she faces in the classroom and other areas of her life, learns the truth of her grandmother's death. Through emotional turmoil, these two fall in love. Adam learns how to be vulnerable, and Zainab learns how to channel her righteous fury. This is one of the best novels I have read in a minute. Um, It is truly so well written and includes so many things that we could discuss and learn from. In particular, there's much we can learn from Adam. He gives us perspective to think about potential life-changing diagnoses and how we communicate those with our loved ones. However, in the interest of today's episode not being three hours long, we are going to be focusing on Zainab and the experiences she has. So unfortunately, Adam is kind of getting the short end of the stick. However, Given his love of Zainab, I don't think he would be bothered by our focusing on her today. I'm joined today by the lovely Dr. Amy Burge and Habiba Abdilal. Dr. Amy Burge is a romance fan and is delighted that she gets to talk about all things romance in her day job as a lecturer in popular fiction at the University of Birmingham, UK. Recently, she's been mostly reading young adult and romance novels written by Muslim women as as part of a wider interest in Muslim women's popular and genre writing in the 21st century. How are you today, Dr. Burge? I'm doing great. Thanks very much, Rihanna. And the wonderful Habiba Abdullah is interested in reading a romance novel after three years of reading academic and theoretical books as a graduate student studying public administration and nonprofit management, focusing on women, gender, and sexuality studies. Also, Habiba works as a graduate assistant for Ohio University's Women's Center and has been volunteering and working in many NGOs, civic initiatives, initiatives and social institutions in Egypt, the MENA region, and the USA. How are you, Habiba? I'm pretty good. Thank you for asking. Uh, Thank you for coming today, both of you. Okay, so this book is a romance novel, and before we dig into the story, I want to take a moment to discuss the stereotypes and stigmas around romance novels. Amy, you're a scholar of romance novels, so we're very glad to have you here today. Um, But often... These novels are labeled as trashy and women are teased for enjoying them. However, the romance novel industry is actually one of the best-selling book genres and is largely written by and for women. Many people believe that romance novels belittle women, but this book is a perfect example of how untrue that is. Arzainab is a strong, loud main character whose goals do not center on her love life, no matter how fun that bit is to read about. So... Why are these negative stereotypes so common and how do we change the way society thinks of the genre? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think often criticism of romance novels 
is led by people who perhaps haven't read a romance novel for themselves. Uh, there's in the media, uh, particularly recently since the Netflix adaptation of Bridgerton, for instance, an adaptation of a series of romance novels uh, and romance and its trashiness uh, seems to be at the forefront of people's minds again. And it seems to center around, you know, romance is somehow bad for women. Uh, like when women read a romance novel, we'll automatically internalize everything about the story. Like somehow we're not able to engage critically or do critical thinking. And the same criticisms never seem to be leveled at science fiction or detective stories or other kinds of genre fiction. And um, so I think sadly, it's a, a big old dose of sexism. Uh, which is the reason why romance novels are, are so criticised in comparison with other popular genres. Um, but really, romance novels, and there's a lot of academic scholarship that has written about this, they're a space where women readers through the characters can work out those struggles. They're spaces where patriarchy is acknowledged, where uh, related problems, you know, Zainab and Islamophobia, uh, they're, they're, they're places where women can work out those problems and read through those problems um, and, and kind of learn about how to deal with the patriarchy in the world. And, and I think they're a really valuable tool for many women and so many, so many readers um, kind of think of them in that way. Yeah, thank you so much for that insight. I totally agree. I watched a documentary recently um, that I will put in the description of this episode so that you all can go find it as well. But um, as I was watching it, it got me so interested in this topic and thinking about the fact that like Nicholas Sparks novels get made into movies and Nora Roberts novels get called trash. And I don't agree with that separate assessment of those authors. Um, and I don't know. I don't think that's a coincidence. But on that same line, romance novels generally are known to get a little spicy and feature a few lewd moments. I mean, I read Fifty Shades of Grey when it came out back in high school, and it was nor it was so normal. I made a joke about it with my grandmother, and my dad hated that. But it was fine. She laughed. So while this book isn't lacking in flavor, it just doesn't quite include the same spices. So instead of heaving bosoms, we get to experience their hands-off thirst for each other, or water, as they refer to it. Um, representation is important in all aspects of media. So what does it mean to have a romance novel from the perspective of a culture that's not normally represented in mainstream Western media? Uh, I can start talking about this. So, like, I'm not into romance novels a lot or like for the last four years of course because like I mentioned um, I have been reading academic books but I actually loved this book because it's so hopeful and I felt really related and connected and I believe that every Muslim and non-Muslim should read this as you get to experience the diversity and see things from the perspective of a different religion, race and ethnicity. So I my personal experience with this book, I, I, I really felt connected with it. I love that. Excuse me. Yeah, I think there's um, that was something that the publisher was trying to do. So th there's a lot of examples, particularly in the last 10 years, 15 years, um, of particularly romance, young adult stories, children's stories, which are written by Muslim authors uh, with Muslim protagonists. 
Um, and this book was published um, by Simon & Schuster's Salam Reads series, which kind of has two aims. The publisher says partly it's about making texts in which Muslim characters are visible. So Muslim readers see themselves reflected in the book. Um, and the second is about making visible uh, experiences of being Muslim to a much wider audience. And um, so it's, it's both of those things. It's about inclusion and also recognizing diversity more widely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so The Marvels of Creation and the Oddities of Existence is an art piece depicting and describing real and mythical creatures, planets, plants, and other natural elements. It inspired the journals that Adam and Zainab spend our story filming. So how would you explain a Marvel and Oddities journal? And might this book have inspired you to start one like it might have for me? For me personally, I, I loved the the idea of the audacity and uh, wait, I have a problem always pronunciation with the pronunciation of the word. But yeah, I, I love to have like I love their journals and I loved how they uh, kind of connected them together and um, for for me while I was reading it was kind of hard to understand sometimes but I I I used to like reread it again to understand what is happening what they are writing and so so like yeah and actually I have a journal myself that always write and I'm trying to be more into what they have showed in that book yeah yeah, I tried to incorporate it into my own journaling. So now if I talk about like a good thing in my journal, I also talk about like maybe a not so good thing or vice versa, just to keep it balanced. Yeah, I first read this book a couple of years ago and rereading it recently, given that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and I've been in lockdown for months now, it made me reappreciate those little things. So the marvels and oddities of, of Adam and Zainabur some of, are big, some of them, but the really small ones, so French fries or a particular color, like those little things, it's it's made me realize how much I'm appreciating those and how much difference those little things are making in my day-to-day -day life. Um, and I really like as well that it's based on this older, like 13th century, I think, manuscript. Um, and the original manuscript seems to be this account of um, you know, a book of wonders or travels. And we have those that survive from the Middle Ages in English, European literature too. And those are frankly quite racist. Um, they're, they're books that talk about the strange people who live in Northern Africa, for instance. And it's, it's clearly illustrative of the prejudices of Christian Western Europe. And I really like that the source text for this book is something different and that Marvels and Oddities isn't about look at those strange people over there, those strange things that are happening. It's about how that has meaning within Adam and Zainab's life. And I really like how the authors adapted, adapted the idea. Um, I think it was so interesting to read about too, because I did not know about the marvels of creation and oddities of existence. So that was something that I got to learn about through this book. And I really enjoyed that process as well. Um, so Zainab's focus in regards to oddities and marvels has been focused through the lens of the discrimination that she faces. Zainab says we too often think of it as being big, violent acts rather than acknowledging the, quote, 
the slow, steady barrage of tiny acts of prejudice. These, your people are trash, lightsaber cuts that tear and peel strips off your soul until you can't feel your numbed heart anymore, unquote. So let's start with what is Islamophobia? Uh, I can say a simple definition about Islam about Islamophobia, which is discrimination and violence against Islam or people who practice Islam, uh, either in Western countries or even in, it's mainly in the Western countries, to be honest. And I can also add that I like, what I liked about the book is that uh, adding to the love and like you can see what love woven through the pages and like the family um the family relation there are also many injustices and islamophobia like we mentioned and islamophobia can manifest itself in significant acts of violence but zainab also was i liked how she was angry and wanted to do something about it and she wanted to change what is happening and her family wanted her to take a step back and like re, re regaining that anger to avoid trouble and she's not willing she wasn't willing to do that and that what i really admired about zainab character and i also can relate to this part as i have been socially conscious outspoken in my family forever and after coming to the United States and living as a Muslim woman here, I have witnessed many of my surroundings being passive dealing with Islamophobia incidents. And so I started feeling angry as Dana. I felt her anger while I was reading because it really related to what experience I have been through here in the United States. And I always, reacted against it but when i used to speak with my family especially from older generations and some of my friends here they responded as zainab's family they kept telling me to do the job and that's life is hard and like just suck it and live it and i when i that made me anxious and hesitated in any kind of discrimination situations because i had this conflict in my head their voices keep like fighting my voice to do something about it. And their voices keep ringing in my head that I should avoid trouble and keep going, like ignore it. But my inner voice kept telling me to do something, to stop it. And yeah, so like it's continuous battle between how you expect it to react and the way you want to react to Islamophobia and discrimination incidents. That was a really amazing definition. Thank you so much. I think that captures really nicely, Habiba, as well, precisely what Zainab talks about in the book, this anger that she feels and her parents kind of encouraging her not to express her anger, to to push it down because of safety. They're worried about her safety and that makes total sense. And then you have her aunt's voice saying, you know, if we never stood up to our parents, nothing would ever change. You know, social justice would never happen. So sometimes you need to push back even against the people who love you and care for you because they they want to keep you safe, but they might not have that justice that Zainab has at, at the forefront of what she's thinking of. Absolutely. And 
we'll get a little bit more into different parts of Zainab's anger throughout our the rest of our talk today. But one of her first oddities was the awful Mr. Fencer, who is her teacher. Um, Zainab describes how the onus of responsibility to challenge his Islamophobia in the moment often falls to her. Like we were just talking about, um, she's angry, right? And so she's dealing with this horribly Islamophobic man and she just can't help it. But this results in him, quote, to dial up his antics. It's like when I walk into class, I can practically see his glasses train their crosshairs on my hijab, unquote. Mm. So there's two cultural issues here, which again, we're learning from a romance novel. I want to recognize that. A genre so often trivialized. Um, so what does it mean that so often those who are most marginalized are seen as responsible for educating others? And then also later, what can allies do, particularly in higher education, to improve inclusion in their classrooms if their faculty aren't doing it? Um, so we can talk about the first question, um, what does it mean that so often those who are marginalized are seen as responsible for educating others? I'm not going to answer the question, but I'm going to like make my comment on it because I believe that there is a huge gap between marginalized individuals sharing their stories freely in an atmosphere of goodwill and having the responsibility to speak as educators. And that what actually keeps happening. And I feel like identity tied to larger mar marginalized group doesn't mean an individual necessarily wants to be an educator or a spokesperson or an activist. The expectation that a marginalized individual must answer personal experience questions, I feel like it represents a full sense of entitlement to a marginalized individual's time and personal history. I also believe being a marginal as as being a marginalized or a, like a Muslim person living in the United States, individual doesn't, like my story doesn't make me an expert in all aspects of the larger group or of the Islamic community. And just as all members of the dominant and marginalized individual do not speak for their people or my experience should not be up for anyone feedback or debate. So like in the book case, Muslims always must educate people about their religion and try to break the stereotypes and prejudice that the media and the politics put or like frame. So I have witnessed many people coming to ask me about Islam, what my practice is, why do I wear hijab and why I believe in that. And like I said, it's instead of going to read or even do small Google search about the questions and like again, my ex I believe like my experience shouldn't be up for your feedback or for your debate about uh, uh, that women shouldn't be wearing hijab because we should, uh, as women, we should be living freely. I had people coming to me questioning my practice uh, because they believe that I'm a women rights defender. I shouldn't be oppressed. I shouldn't be wearing, like making a lot of assumptions about my practice and wanting it to be generalized on the whole Islam. Like, and that put me under a lot of pressure most of the time because that means I need to represent Islam all the time. I need to represent my community, which is like, I'm a human being. I can make mistakes. I can interpret Islam in the wrong way. I can take, choose whatever 
I want from Islam and practice it. And that doesn't put it on Islam itself as a religion. Like, yeah. I think that's a really good point, Habiba, as well. And it's something I've read a lot of examples of, of stories written by Muslim women authors. And that's something I, I can see reflected that there's all kinds of different characters represented in these books. There is no one fictional model of what a Muslim woman, particularly a young Muslim woman, um, should be like or should look like. And that I, that might be part of it, that authors are really resisting that pressure to to represent everything about Islam in just one individual person, which obviously is impossible. Um, I can speak maybe, Rihanna, to your second question there. Um, mm -hmm. What can allies, particularly in higher education, do? Uh, I, I think the important thing is is to try and recognize that many people will be learning um, how, how to be an ally and how to organize things in, in the classroom. Um, I can talk a bit about what I do. Um, so I teach Muslim women's popular fiction uh, to undergraduate students. Uh, and I'm aware that you know I, I study genre, but I am not the expert in the room. Um, I have some expertise, but my students, many of whom are Muslim women, are bringing their own expertise and their own experiences into that room. So I try really hard to decenter myself, um, which is difficult sometimes when people look to you as the teacher, as the expert in the room. And um, so sometimes that's challenging for my students as well is, is recognizing their own expertise. Um, but I try and, and make the classroom a little more democratic, a little more even and recognizing that we all have expertise and experience that we're bringing to these texts. Um, and I think it's helpful in a way because because it's popular fiction, because these are stories that speak to all of my students in, in different ways. They're set in contemporary time periods. They're talking about things that my students are interested in. Um, and, and I focus as well on how the room feels. Um, I think often in higher education, we focus so much on the stuff, like this is what we need to learn. This is what we need to remember. These are the skills we need to have. And, but I teach literature and the point of literature is to make you feel something, right? It's emotional. And it, we lose that sometimes when we study it. So I, I try and say to my students, it's okay to feel certain ways. Um, you both talked already about feeling angry with Zainab and, you know, this book made us feel certain ways. And, and I think we need to bring that back into the classroom. Um, and that can be really helpful as well with with thinking about the, the emotions and, and the empathy that this literature is asking us to think about. Thank you, Amy, so much. I think that was very helpful in, um, for me particularly, um, I am still an undergraduate student who still sits in a classroom and sometimes my professors just aren't being inclusive. They just are ignoring things that like are obviously making other students around me uncomfortable. And I'm like, what? So thank you for your perspective on that. I really appreciate that you are doing your part to not be that professor. Um, I also wanted to yeah. add something. So like, yeah, because whenever I, I keep thinking about like marginalized groups and like being, uh, um, I feel like it's really important to make people understand again that a personal experience is not like, a rule for what is this marginalized group having so like as example so like as me living and telling my story that doesn't mean that all women muslim women are living the same experience here because i heard a lot of 
my my friends living in the United States as Muslim women, they haven't faced discrimination. So I feel like it's different from a person to another. It's person. It it's it's different from uh, a place to another. So I don't. I I just hate the the idea of generalizing and like bringing someone from a marginalized group to represent this group and talk about what is happening in their country or in their religion or because again it's yeah I, I'm not sure if I'm putting this into the right words but I feel like yeah I hate the idea of generalizing and I feel like we can improve this by encouraging discussions more about marginalized groups and encouraging discussion about that whole idea of generalizing and like putting people in frames and pe putting people in like a template to understand what they are. There's um, a scholar uh, called Deepa Kumar who has written about Orientalist myths that kind of underpin Islamophobia. I mean, what you're talking about, Habiba, is Islamophobia, this idea that Islam is a monolith. Islam is one thing and every Muslim is the same and feels the same and practices religion in the same way. And that's a really old myth that has been around for so long that it's become so intrinsic in the way that many people, particularly in the global north and the Western world, think about Islam and about the way Muslims practice religion. Um, that, yeah, it's we have to counter that Islamophobia. So that that generalizing is, is all bound up together. And speaking of generalizing, our next question kind of follows this um, frame. So there's a character in the book, Naomi, the girl with the blonde bangs, who at one point in the book recognizes that meeting Zainab causes her to rethink her feminist approach that women who wear hijab are necessarily oppressed. It brings up the notion of democratic hijab and forced hijab. Democratic hijab being when there is a choice to wear hijab and forced when it is compulsory and there is no choice. So how does this act interaction in the book help us think about what is referred to as white feminism? And why is it so controversial to wear a hijab or even burkini in some cultures? Or why, why do we generalize the the one practice of wearing hijab to mean something that obviously it does not mean? I can respond to the second part of the question, which is like why it's so controversial to wear hijab. I believe it's a matter of power. It's a matter of power on, on women's bodies because we don't see this controversial about uh, 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 Muslim people praying or being sadaqah or zakah or whatever. We it just we want to like it's some the countries that I think the banning coming from some countries of what women should wear or not should uh, what should they be wearing or what they should not. It's not out of concern for women, but out of a desire to shrink the space within which Muslim can dress, live and practice freely in Western countries. And again, I believe it's like a matter of power on women's bodies because we have the same conversation back in our uh, country, in, in my country, in Egypt. It's always a big deal when a woman decide not to wear the hijab. But it's not a big deal when you lie or when you steal or when you do something which is not Islamic 
proper or in the Islamic practice, but it's always about what women is wearing, how they are uh, like behaving, and like we have this kind of control. We want to like we want to control on women's bodies and decisions, and like freely movement and stuff. Yeah, so. I think the um, the Muslim woman as a, a stereotype, as an icon, has been particularly visible in Islamophobia, um, particularly in the global north, the Western world, um, which this idea, Laila Abu-Lugot um, talks about, you know, Muslim women needed saving and connecting it to white feminism, particularly after 9-11, this idea that um, white women saving brown women from brown men. So borrowing Spivak's terminology, that's how the phrase is, has been thought of, um, that white women, white feminism will save the oppressed Muslim woman. I'm, I'm doing imaginary non-visible air quotes here right now to indicate that that this is a stereotype, this is an Islamophobic idea. Um, and yeah, I think Noam, Noami in the book is is an interesting example of, of where SK Ali is, is clearly criticizing that white feminism, this idea that, well, white feminism, the exclusion of um, thinking about intersectionality in your feminism, but also that becomes, you know, you must be oppressed because you are a Muslim woman because you're forced to wear hijab and not recognizing the complexity of that. And I really like the way that the conversation plays out in the book and indicates that actually, you know, your what you thought before was uh, was a prejudice and was based on the same Islamophobic thinking that the teacher had before. Um, and, and they show, they show Naomi uh, kind of growing and developing her thinking, which, which I think is a, a nice way to do it and, and potentially a more useful way for a more useful way to show that development in thinking. It wasn't that uh, she she always thought very openly about feminism and her feminism was always intersectional, which shows how she got there, uh, which might help more people to get there themselves. Yes, absolutely. I think um, that conversation was so interesting because it was so about learning and also about apologizing at the same time for past mistakes and prejudices and things that, we just didn't think about before um and i want to add something like about islamophobia i feel like islamophobia is not tied to a country or to a religion because like i had muslim friends who have came to me and they are muslim like more into the liberal uh, uh perspective and they believe that i'm oppressed or i'm brainwashed because I'm talking about uh, uh, fighting violence and fighting oppression against women. And at the same time, I'm being oppressed wearing the hijab. So like I, I got Muslim people to come. So I believe like Islamophobia is not tied to a country or to uh, a religion. I think it's a way of thinking. It's And it's a way of excluding people and like putting like making assumptions of people's choices. Hmm. There's um, uh, something that I talk to my students about um, is secular feminism versus religious feminism, specifically Islamic feminism. And this idea that feminism and Islam are 
completely opposing. You know, Islam is a sexist religion. You can't be a feminist and also practice Islam. And there, increasingly, there are lots of scholars who are looking to Islamic texts and their interpretations and, and thinking about how you can build a feminist movement using those religious texts kind of through rather than despite those texts so you know feminism isn't secular feminism can be so many different things as we know multiple feminisms um, and, and islamic feminism is a really interesting and i think useful way of of challenging precisely uh, what you're saying happy yeah. and I, I i can add also like i have been excluded from the feminism movement in egypt for years because of me choosing to wear the hijab and because as i mentioned islamophobia is not related to religion or a place, they believe that I'm oppressed and I'm brainwashed. I got someone who was working with me and she likes to call herself a feminist, telling me that you have traveled, you have learned outside, you like you did master's degrees and you're still wearing this shit on your head. Uh, so yeah, and like you said, Amy, I believe that being a feminist, like, who decides are you a feminist or not? You know, like, who give you the label and like that? And yeah, it's sad. <laughs> oh my goodness, I can't believe somebody said that to you. I'm, oh. I heard this a lot. Wow. <laughs> I, I am angry on your behalf, my dear. Oh my goodness. Um, and I, I can say like for some, for some women, and again, I don't want to generalize, but like hijab for some women, it's fashion for some others. It's an expression of their modesty and like a practice and how they interpret Islam. And for many women, it's actually an identity. So, and like in Egypt, it's becoming more a culture and a social, um, norm more than uh religious and practicing part of the islam so that's why it's so complicated when we start talking about like and it's so controversial to wear the hijab or not to wear burkini or not in in some cultures and even in our culture like in islamic culture it's still so tricky and so complicated habiba i think it goes back to you know in in all cultures where we see sexism in many different ways, the intensity of how much people focus on women's bodies and want to police and manage women's bodies. You know, we see it, um, you know, hijab, the, the Islamophobic idea is, you know, you're covering up, but at the same time, those same people will probably criticize women who go out in short skirts um, or tops that show their midriff. So, you know, as a woman, you can't cover up too much, but you can't reveal too much. And it's this balance, this intense policing of women's bodies that is, I mean, it's such a contradiction that people don't see the hypocrisy in criticizing one and criticizing the other, you know, that, yeah. Yes, I was reading this book and I remember there was a moment where I, I was just thinking like, you just can't win. It, it does not matter which side you pick you can't win somebody's gonna be mad at you no matter what exactly. um, so like for me i i i do what i want to do i live like i believe how i want to live at least now and i believe people like keep keep developing and keep changing their minds their beliefs their perspective and 
I put those kinds of perspectives behind me and I keep going. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of keeping going, um, earlier we talked about how Zainab has described herself as angry. Um, and she talks about how her anger feels all-consuming, but it's very justified. Um, and there's this one scene that I, it really stuck out to me because she's ranting to Adam and he's just trying to calm her down right and she is not interested in being calmed down so she feels this is very annoying of him and i've seen this regularly in my own relationship um but there is a moment towards the end of the book that leaves zainab with clarity and direction and i don't want to give away too much from the book we don't want to spoil the whole thing but in a moment war shows Zainab the large-scale tragedies that can be caused by the way western cultures view Islam so I want to start with a moment of silence for the non-fictional innocent victims of United States drone strikes thank you for that um, so this moment um, and this clarity helps Zainab refocus her anger and consider the ways in which she can be an activist and work for social justice. So what tips do you all have for budding activists from your own experiences? Um, I possibly have less to say on this than Habiba. Uh, I, so I can go first with a couple of things. Um, my activism has shifted over time. Um, I was... Uh, more angry, like Zainab, I guess, when I was younger. Um, I went on women's marches. Uh, I wrote angry letters and I still write angry letters and fill surveys. Um, but I think my activism looks a little different now. Um, I'm an educator. I get to uh, share stories and uh, kind of influence other people in different ways or kind of make a good, make a change in the world in a different way. Um, so I think activism isn't just one thing. Um, I think it can change based on what you're doing um, kind of based on how much energy you have, how much time you have. Um, and in terms of practical tips, I think it's really important to take care of ourselves and take care of each other as activists. Um, it can be really exhausting work. It's often very personal work, very emotional work. Um, a lot of activists do activism around things that they identify with. So gender, uh, race, religion. Um, so these are things that can, it can feel very draining. Um, to have to constantly defend or fight for things that are part of who you are. Uh, but I'd also say sometimes in, in particular political climates and in particular spaces, it can feel just like you could never make a difference. The problems are so large and so old and have just been so embedded that you just think, well, what can I do? What difference can I make? And I think actually, even if it's it feels like one tiny thing, one little drop of water into a giant lake um, little things do add up um, so not being discouraged to just do little moments of activism every day um, you know even smiling at somebody uh, or saying hello to somebody different or reading um, an article that you've been meaning to read all of those are activist actions um, that can all kind of push in in the right direction towards social justice and understanding and, and empathy that's really awesome yeah, thank you. And for me, I, as an activist, 
and I have been an activist for the last 10 years and I can define myself now as tired, not activist. <laughs> I, and I also try, tried and I'm still trying to shift more into the practical and the practitioner way of it and the policy making part. I believe that it's important to still do the social activism protests, like I keep saying it, like the field work protests. But I believe also it's really important to have people advocating in offices, in like for legislations, for policies, for uh, changing the institutions itself. So I believe my tips would be like question your own assumptions always question your own assumptions, always reflect on yourself before reflecting on other people. And like, take a step back and don't be like a defensive. And like, think about what is happening here and be ready to learn from the experiences you are having. Even if it's like, I feel the anger and it's not, to be, to be Honestly, it's not that easy to like take a step back and reflect when you are facing uh, discrimination or when you are facing violence. But it's a learning practice. It's like a learning process. It, it needs a lot of practice. Uh, to yeah, I think not to make kind of assumptions about other people and be ready to learn from it and do not lose your voice in the process. Do not lose your own voice in the process yeah oh thank you both so much for those tips i so appreciate that and the perspective that you both have is so interesting because you know i'm an undergraduate student um so i am only 21 right and so i like to think that i'm in the early stages of myself as an activist um i've always been angry about things but i've only just now really started to figure out that there's a way to articulate that. So I like the idea that someday I'll have a, another level of And activism. it's so normal to be angry. I, I don't know why people keep promoting anger people like and emotional people as like bad people and like we should be op like oppressing this anger and like being uh, uh, um, like uh, really calm all the time. No, it's, it's, it's totally fine to be angry, but again, what are you going to do with this anger? Mm. Oh, yeah. Habiba, I loved that. I have been told my whole life that I need to yeah. not be angry and that my points are like less because I'm so angry. And I'm like, no, there's still valid points. I'm just mad. I know, and you have the right to be mad. There are a lot of injustice. There are a lot of uh, 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 violence in the world. And I believe that you have the right to be angry we have the right to be mad about it but again like yeah what are we gonna do next after being angry and and expressing our anger yeah. absolutely well thank you both so so much for joining me for our conversation today it's been amazing thank you um, for having us so thank you thank you um can i ask you both a question before before we finish um, what were your favorite bits of the book and why? Have you had to pick a bit that you particularly liked? To be honest, I loved the idea of the love story because for me, 
as Muslim person living in the United States, I feel like I haven't met someone to connect with because of the like the religion thing and that like I keep saying it, the elephant in the room. So for me to see that there is hope for me to find someone that will understand <laughs> my beliefs and my practices and stuff, I, I felt really hopeful. I think for me, um, one of my favorite moments was actually towards the end of the book. No, no, the middle of the book. I lied. The when Zainab is staying with her aunt in Doha, she goes down to her aunt's pool. Oh yeah, and there's all of this controversy over the fact that she's not wearing an actual swimsuit the first time she goes swimming she's still in i'm i think like just her street clothes and the man in charge of the pool is like very unhappy that she is swimming and he says like because she's not wearing a real swimsuit but that's not the truth the truth is that she's covering her body and that makes him mad so um the next time she goes swimming she swims in her aunt's burkini and he still gets mad but this time her aunt comes with her and is like ready to show up and it's a moment that Zaina realizes that like it's okay to stand up for yourself like that's not that doesn't make you a bad person that doesn't make you just angry and I really loved that moment I agree there's a really the kind of the final time when she confronts like the the husband who's been saying the comments and his wife and she says um uh your resistance to my existence is futile I'm not going to let your prejudice your outrage your fake kindness change one bit of me of how I look of who I am um I thought that was brilliant the way she kind of comes full circle and it's you know she starts angry but kind of doesn't feel able to say anything she's trying to hold down that anger and then with her aunt's help she learns how to channel that and to use it in certain ways and, and pushes that anger into supporting her identity and, and resisting, you know, anger becomes resistance, which I guess is, is what Habiba was saying about activism as well. That's that's one tool. Um, and it's really nice to see Zainab using that. That was an amazing yeah. question, Amy. Thank you. thank you for that. And thank you all so much for tuning in today. This has been the Purple Couch Clubhouse from the Ohio University Women's Center. We've been reading S.K. Ali's Love from A to Z. If you enjoyed today's discussion, check out Ali's other amazing work, including The Proudest Blue, and head to ohio.edu slash diversity slash women's dash center for more amazing programs and events. Until next time, folks, have an amazing day and keep growing with all of us here at The Purple Couch. <laughs>